Hey friends, thank you to Melanie for reading our scripture, kind of a seemingly uh, odd choice of scripture for this week. So we filmed the bulk of the service way back on the Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving, but I just was not ready to preach a sermon then. The tragedy in Waukesha had just happened Sunday night. Then we spent Monday figuring out what had happened and um, kind of planning for and being part of that interfaith vigil. Um, we spent most of Tuesday talking to many of you who had been affected in some way. And so when I was standing in front of the camera that Wednesday, I just wasn't ready yet. Pastor Sherry, by the way, preached a beautiful sermon um, that Wednesday night for the Thanksgiving Eve service. And if you haven't uh, heard it yet, I really encourage you to go listen. It was just, it was exactly what we needed that day. Genuine, real, hopeful. Um, and I'm, I'm sure if I like had had to speak, the spirit would have given me the words then, but I'm really, I'm grateful to have had a few days now um, before doing this. And so for these past five days, I've just been turning the scripture over and over and over in my mind. Because when you read it, it does seem like a very odd choice for the start of a new church year and the beginning of the Christmas season. Um, because it's, it's pretty dark, right? Think of the weight of some of those words in the beginning, distress, confused, roaring, fainting, fear, shaken. Some of that actually hits a little close to home this week. Um, and it definitely all feels pretty out of sync with kind of the festivities picking up around us for the start of the Christmas season. But it actually isn't the Christmas season yet, at least not in church, it's Advent. And every year this happens with the readings assigned for Advent, they're all pretty heavy, pretty dark. It's, it's a style of writing, which is called apocalyptic, which means it's about the end times, like sort of final climactic battle between forces of good and evil. And this style of writing in the Bible is very, I don't know, quite the right word is like prescribed. So it's kind of like there's a set stock of images and phrases and the same ones are always used uh, for this kind of thing. So Jesus is not making any of this up himself. When he's talking in verse 25, 26, 27, the signs in the stars, the eclipse of the sun and moon, fighting among the nations, the heavens shaken, son of man coming in a cloud. None of that is new. These are the same words and same images that we read in Joel and Isaiah, Zephaniah and Daniel. Um, so they're words and phrases everyone already knows. They've heard them a thousand times because in the Old Testament, especially, these are words that prophets would use when bad things happen um, to interpret them as God's impending punishment for things that we've done wrong. So especially in these first few verses, it's like Jesus is just following the script. Uh, but then in verse 29, Jesus starts to flip the script. And he does that with that parable about the fig tree. Now, the image of a fig tree that's not new. Fig trees come up all the time in the Old Testament, but not in apocalyptic literature, unless you're talking about a fig tree like shriveling up and dying, which Jesus does do. Um, but in the Bible, 
fig trees are a symbol of wealth, prosperity, and peace. There are fig trees in the Garden of Eden. There are fig trees when you make it to the promised land. There are fig trees when you finally throw out all the tyrants and for one brief shining moment, live in a free nation under King Solomon. That's where we get that verse from that's now become famous in the Hamilton song that George Washington sings, the one last time. Everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. So with this comparing the end times to a fig tree about to bud, it's like Jesus is offering a totally different interpretation of the things that make us afraid. The events that shake us to our core, he says, and this is a really audacious claim, he says, that's not a sign of divine punishment. That is a sign of divine imminence. That's like a promise that God is near. That's a pretty audacious claim, right? Like we, as the people of God, we've done plenty of things wrong through the centuries. We've seen our fair share of tragedies. Um, thinking through our Bibles, sin entering the Garden of Eden, Cain murdering his brother Abel, families torn apart by drought and famine, the temple of God destroyed not once, twice. Um, and throughout those pages, again and again and again, that little country is defeated and conquered by like whoever the latest imperial power of the day is. So conflict, violence, both on a national level and within our own families, this is all painfully familiar. And as humans, when we do something wrong or see something that is so wrong, most often what's our first instinct is to cast blame. Eve made me eat the apple. What, am I my brother's keeper? You disobeyed God, so God let the Assyrian army beat you. And this isn't a slam on Judaism in any way. This isn't like an Old Testament thing to cast blame when bad things happen. We all do this, right? And I think, I think it's because we just want so badly to keep up our illusion of control. Like if we can believe that it was our fault or somebody's fault, then we can believe it might be within our control to keep bad things from happening. And then, then we can avoid the exquisitely heartbreaking fact that sometimes we are just utterly unable to protect the people we love. Jesus, Jesus doesn't do blame. He just doesn't even go there. He points us in a completely different direction, which is to surrender what we cannot control and embrace what we can, which is this. We can always control how we respond. And when tragedy strikes, personal or public, the people of God are called to respond with hope. Because when we see these signs, Jesus says, we can know help is on the way. God is near. And <laughs> this is why I find this seemingly odd choice of a reading to actually be oddly comforting this week. This is why I'm glad that it is Advent now and not Christmas yet. Um, because at Christmas in church, 
We talk a lot about how God is with us. That is the core faith promise of Christmas Day, that in the person of Jesus, God has come to be with us. They call him Emmanuel, God with us. But here's my question, you guys. What about the days when God being with us doesn't seem like enough? I was remembering a time when I was in high school and I was part of an evangelical church then and was really struggling with like friend dynamics and drama and, you know, huge crushes on guys who didn't even know I existed. Um, and then at youth group one week, uh, an older woman was talking to us and she was kind of encouraging us to live for God alone. Like, Believe that God is sufficient for all your needs. So you should only care what God thinks of you. And you know what? God loves you. God is with you. And she meant her words to be encouraging to people like me who are in the middle of high school drama. Like, you don't need them. You have God. But I have just this very vivid memory of walking along the road by my house the next day, um, kicking a pebble, uh, thinking about what she had said. And, and I remember thinking, I, I'm not sure God alone is enough for me. Like I want friends. I want to be liked. I don't want God to be with me. I want that cute guy from second period algebra to be with me. And I remember when I was in the thick of postpartum depression and feeling just, just like I was drowning, like totally overwhelmed. And I would kind of try and pastor myself, like say to myself, remember, Mo, you are not alone. God is with you. <laughs> and I remember answering myself like, so what? What difference does it make that God is with me? I'm still drowning, aren't I? What good does it do me that God is with me while I'm drowning? There is one small but mighty word in our reading today. And it's a word that shows up not one, not two, but three times. And each time it is at the very end of the sentence, like the final note. And that is the word near. Summer is near. The kingdom of God is near. Stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When we are in the thick of it, like when we're really in the pit of despair, Sometimes I think God is near is actually more helpful and more hopeful than God is here. God is here is good. That's good solidarity. But God is near. That is the promise of change. That when things are just not right, God is near is the promise that help is on the way. That the way things are now is not the way they always will be. It won't always be this hard. It will get better. All will be well. All will be made right in the end. And if things aren't right right now, it's because it's not the end yet. So hold on because help is on the way. So friends, which one do you need today? God is here or God is near? The beautiful thing, of course, is we don't actually have to choose. We get both. Um, because for sure, God is here. God really is with us always, even and especially in times of trial. When we, whenever we get ready to record a video worship service like this, we always pray first. And when I do, I, I picture as many of you as I possibly can. 
all your faces before me and I'm, and I'm doing that right now. Um, but just thinking of, of all of you who I know, and for many of you, I, I know at least some small part of what you've gone through this past year. And, and for some of you, I know what you're facing right now. Um, and for some of you, that's really, really hard. So for those of you uh, who are in the thick of it, my pastor heart, it wants to give you more than just God is with you. I want you to know that not only is God with you, but God is drawing near to you. Like help is on the way. God's healing and easing of burdens and setting you free. God's salvation, it is coming closer to you every minute. So stand up, raise your head, hang in there because your redemption is drawing near. One of, one of our favorite pieces of kid equipment these days, um, it's like these little reusable plastic baby food pouches. They have a squeeze top, like, like the ones you can buy at the store, but they open on the bottom so you can fill them with yogurt or applesauce or whatever, and then just rinse them out and reuse them when you're done. Last week, I ordered some more um, so I could give them to my niece, Tess, for Hanukkah. She's, she's just starting solid, so it seems like obvious choice for a gift. And you know, right, how obnoxious and obsessive parents can be when they find some product that they think is like the be-all and all. Anyways. I placed this order last week for these pouches. And today an email showed up in my inbox and the subject line says, good news, your order is on the way. So friends, here is what I want you to take away from our scripture today. When you go through times of trial, you don't even need to place an order. Help is already on the way. God is already on the way. Jesus wants the hardship itself to be our reminder of the goodness that is to come. So even in the face of unspeakable grief, may God save us from our instinct to blame. May God help us be gentle with ourselves when we feel at our most powerless. When we look back, may we see God's faithfulness, not just in our lives, but through the ages. And may that give us the strength to keep looking forward with great hope. May we trust that God is near, that our help is almost here. And then may we turn around and be God's help for all of our neighbors. Amen. And now, of course, the very perfect song for this week and the scripture, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Let's sing.